Holy Father, as we sing that song, and, and what a wonderful lead-in to our topic this morning, we also just pray that messages of those, especially those, well, those three last songs, all the songs, are true in our lives, as well as those who are on our hearts and minds this morning, who are indeed in need of peace. We lift up particularly this morning the Strawn family, and Greg and Pam, and Jordan, and Marissa, and Aaron and Kelly, and all their children and grandchildren. We lift up Pam, that she is indeed in peace, and we lift up Greg's heart, as we know that he's not. <laughs> but we pray, God, that you can rest your hand upon his heart and his head and his mind and give him the peace that only you can, and pray that we can do our part in that as well. We pray for good moments for Greg and Pam, however many there are left. And we just pray that your will be done and you be glorified even in the midst of such sorrow. We lift this up and pray this for everyone on our hearts and minds that are experiencing pain or sorrow this year, whether it's physical or emotional or mental or spiritual. We pray for those in this congregation who have dealt with health issues lately, for those who have had loss, for those who have been in great need of your peace this year, and I pray for the rest of us as well. There will be a time, whether soon or not so soon, that we will be indeed in need of the peace only you can give. May this lesson serve to, not my lesson, God, but may this lesson that points to you and only what you can offer assuage the pain and sorrow, wherever there needs be peace, that has been, that is, and will be. May you be praised, and may your Son be proclaimed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Once again, thank you for those songs, Frank. And uh, although I, I could not, could not help, but the first few lines of Peace in the Valley, in my head at least, go, Oh, well, I'm tired. I, I grew up, the first two Elvis songs I ever knew, Peace in the Valley and Blue Christmas, which of course, Blue Christmas, uh, 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 I'm not going to, that's all. Oh, uh, Blue, anyway, <laughs> thank you for that. I've actually, you want to, fun fact about your preacher that you may be horrified, I've actually been a paid Elvis impersonator twice in my life. Um, I've retired from that though, so don't ask <laughs> We are talking, whoops, you want to save that for later? Did I get up too early? Okay, well, no, I'm not, but everyone sing real fast. Do we want, do we want to sing this song, though? Would you mind? Let's do it at the end, okay. There we go. <laughs> We will have peace in the service, even if it's in pieces, it's all good. As I said before, we are talking about peace today, <laughs> and uh, and it's an appropriate subject, obviously, not just in the light of this year uh, or this season, but it is also something which, obviously, we are all in need of at some point or another, 
and uh, I I see this. Well, remember even last week, I should have put a slide of it up again. I asked, what do you hope for in 2021? And we as a congregation predominantly said, peace. I believe this is also true for most of the world. And I don't just mean that in times of, of pandemic or crisis, but I think this is true for the most part because obviously... What's the opposite of peace? Anxiety? Depression even? Timothy Keller says that the Bible's premise is that a Christian's heart is not a morally restrained heart, but a supernaturally transformed heart. And there is a big difference when it comes to simply resisting doing what you know you not you know you ought not to versus having your heart transformed that you will indeed do and not do what you ought and what you ought not to do. Although, a lot of that, I talked about this briefly last week, these uh, three weeks will very much flow together. When it comes to peace, when it comes to hope, when it even comes to joy, which is our next week's sermon, what comes down to, what impacts that is oftentimes our expectation of whatever it is that we're encountering. I'm going to throw a picture up here, and it's just a piece of, you know, it's just a picture of an apartment uh, I found on the internet. I don't know what you think of this picture. All right, you got that in your head? All right, I'm going to show you something else. Now, this is a five-star hotel's wedding suite. Ready? Got it? All right, I'll show you one other thing. Now this picture is a jail cell. How did your interpretation of the picture differ? based on your first inclination, which, you know, it's not a bad apartment. I mean, it's a, it's a studio apartment. There's a bunk bed. Uh, I'm glad there's a bar right there. Actually, uh, I know from, in basic training, I switched bunks from a, with a guy. I was on the floor, and I switched to the lower upper bunk. Reveille went off, and I stepped out of bed and fell on the floor. So a rail's important. You know, there's a kitchen back there. There's a table. You know, it's, it's got some, there's a fridge probably back there. It's got some nice amenities. Now, here's the thing. What happened? expectation ever said this is a five-star uh, wedding suit all of a sudden your your interpretation changes and you go what a dump I wouldn't pay as a wedding suite I wouldn't pay 50 bucks for that for a night for a wedding suite but when I said it was a jail cell what did you think not a bad place I could go to jail <laughs> wouldn't be a bad spot to live right? our expectation determines often what our interpretation of things are. We expect things to be a certain way. Oftentimes, whatever happens will be interpreted according to that expectation. Wedding suite, jail cell, oh, not a bad room. Ah, it's a dump. It's just an apartment. When it comes to expectations, I want to throw at you a couple of quotes uh, from a few different people that, uh, that may be not what you expect. Charles Darwin said this, a man who has no assured and ever-present belief in the existence of a personal God or of a future existence with retribution and reward can only have his 
for his rule of life only to follow those impulses and instincts which seem to him the best ones. Charles Darwin, as we know, is the man that's popularized, um, known and credited with popularizing the theory of evolution. Another one, uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., a Supreme Court justice, said this in a letter. He said, I see no reason for attributing to man a significance different in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or to a grain of sand. The world has produced the rattlesnake as well as me, but I kill it if I get a chance, as also mosquitoes, cockroaches, murderers, and flies. My only judgment is that they are <laughs> incongruous with the world I want, the kind of world we all try to make according to our power. Now, he got some flack for this, because obviously, as a, as a Supreme Court justice, saying that you know a man's life is no different than a baboon or a grain of sand, what, what's going on? One more at you. This is uh, in the early 2000s, around 2010s or early 2000s. This is uh, Richard Dawkins, who uh, is known as one of the four horsemen of the new atheist movement. They've, they've kind of gotten less popular as it goes, but this was back, this is a campaign that he and a comedian, uh, Ariane Shireen, uh, put on in England. On all the buses, they put this sign. It said, there's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. So the reason I put all this up here is two reasons. One, this is a microcosm over you know several decades and such of many people's expectations when it comes to life. Charles Darwin, in essence, says that if you don't have a personal God, if there is no such thing, then all you have is what seems best to you is what you ought to do. Oliver Wendell Holmes, while he got some flack for this, takes it to the next level and simply goes to the conclusion matter. He basically works it out, saying if there is no God, if there is no um, no personal God or anything, there is no uh, significance to man other than that or a baboon or a grain of sand. He's saying here that, you know, hey, things happen, people get killed. It's all based on getting the world that we want because there's no reason for it. Now, it's interesting that it's on these two gentlemen's lines of thought that Richard Dawkins advocates there's probably no God, so stop work, enjoy your life. Well, the question is, why? Why enjoy your life if there's no point? Why stop worrying if there's no reason and no point of life? And according to their logic, somebody could kill me and it's only what seems right to them and there's nothing I can do about it. The logical reasoning to all of these expectations is that there's no right or wrong. There's no accountability. There's no reason for anything. But inevitably... We try to get to this point who believe and subscribe and who advocately or advocate for this and adamantly defend this still want peace. So do Christians. So does everyone. Roland already read it, but I want to return to text of our lesson today, which is Philippians <clears throat> chapter 4, starting in verse 4, and if you haven't opened it, uh, swiped it open, turned it on, uh, flipped to it, whatever way you read your Bibles, I do encourage you to do so, even as I struggle to find Philippians myself. They must have moved it on me. There it is. <laughs> 
because um, we will be constantly returning to this. I want to read through this and point out a few things, and I want to constantly uh, refer back to this as in this lesson, we're going to talk about three things, and I'll have a slide for it. We're going to talk about the nature of peace, the discipline of peace, and the secret of peace. The nature of peace, the, care, the discipline of peace, and the secret of peace. Now, if you think I'm being a little bit weird with saying the secret of peace, I'm using Paul's word here, and we'll read Philippians uh, real quick just to refresh our minds with what Paul says. I'll read from here because it's up there. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. The immediate context of Paul is he is writing to the Philippian church who apparently have supported him in the past. And he's writing them. He's working out some church issues. He's sending them Timothy and Epaphroditus. He's working it out with Iodia and Syntyche earlier in the chapter 4. And he's thanking them for being supporters in his work. And he's ending with this passage, more or less, in which he says, Thank you for your gifts. I have no need. I've learned the secret of being content. And he gives them these final admonitions to rejoice, and a couple other things that have to do with peace. A couple other things that kind of shapes this passage a little bit. Verse 6, when he says, do not be anxious about anything. I want to make it very clear, and this is where I would write a note on this if you're a note-taking person. That word for anxious is not a word for normal care and concern. If you love somebody, if you love something, if you love someone, you naturally have a care and concern for them. You don't want anything bad to happen to them. You want to take care of them. You worry about them, hopefully in a healthy way. That's just be called loving someone. This is not the word for that. This word actually literally in the Greek means to fall to pieces. It means to be so worried about something, so anxious about something, that it it paralyzes you, that you cannot go on, that you are literally falling apart in worry. That's the kind of anxiety that he's talking about here, and I keep turning this off, and it's messing with me. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, he says, if you do this, will guard your hearts and minds. And this doesn't come in English, but this is actually a very vivid word for guard. The word guard here doesn't just mean to, to protect or put away. This is actually a military term that literally means to have an army protecting a city. Now, if you were in the middle of somewhere, and actually I have been in a war zone. I've slept downrange in the middle of active fire where a base was getting attacked, and I've slept at a uh, very nice base in Germany which had no chance of being attacked that had many more people. Which do you think I slept better at? The word guard 
means that an army is outside, in essence, protecting you, that you can sleep soundly, that it is fortified, you have no need to worry. That's what the word guard means. It's actually a very, very strong, vivid word. But what is peace? If that's what will guard our hearts, if we can attain it by rejoicing and not be anxious about anything and, and such. What's the nature of peace? Well, based on this passage, and actually here's where I need to open my Bible as well. Based on this passage, there are two definitions that we can take away from what Paul says peace is. Number one, that peace seems to be an inner calm and steadiness. Now, I'm not talking... I had... I had... I... I muted myself. My fault. I'm sure out there, all of you who are listening were like, where'd he go? I'm sorry. And I also have no idea where to, where to restart. <laughs> Quick rehab. Peace seems to be the inner calm and steadfastness through any situation based on the word content, but also peace seems to be the ab not the absence, but the presence of something. You see, he says that it's not about... Well, let me, let me do this. <laughs> when it comes to attaining peace, when it comes to self-help things, when it comes to self-help books, when it comes to websites, there's a trend that I have noticed. And a lot of the trends, and even some of the stuff that we talk about, I'm not saying any of this stuff is bad by any means. But when it comes to some of these things, there's a trend that I notice. Let's see if you can pick it up a little bit. This is from a Google search of how to get peace in my life. And these are this is a website that said 40 things uh, to attain peace. This is the first 25. Listen to music, deep breathing, go for a walk, enjoy nature, play with a pet, declutter, acceptance, mindfulness, self-love, be true to you, sense of humor, love unconditionally, go for regular health checks, take stock, meaning of life, uh, have goals, don't take yourself too seriously, live in the moment, worry less, be assertive. Speak your mind. Enjoy me time. Frolic. They actually said that. Frolic. I can't say frolic without it being in that pitch. Frolic. Let it... Let it go is what that should be. Let it go. <clears throat> Resist guilt. Adopt an attitude of gratitude. This is verse 25. Now, it's interesting because I noticed a trend. Either there are things in here which help you not think about what's going on, or there are things in here which are the very essence, usually, of what you need peace for. This website says to accept what's going on. Usually, that's what's not giving you the peace in the first place. Mindfulness, self-love. Usually, when it comes to non-peaceful situations, I'm not liking something about what's going on, and I'm, it's in my mind. Um, worry less. Isn't that the point? <laughs> You see, here's the thing. The very nature of biblical peace is not about a lack of something, but the presence of something. And what I notice, and there are these are all good things. Don't hear me knock any of these, okay? Also, I feel like this is a good time to say this. Not every problem is a spiritual problem. There is a place for counseling, for therapy, for medications, when it comes to depression, anxiety, there is a place for those things. Not every problem when it comes to this is a spiritual problem. 
There's a place for all of these things. But the thing is that the very first place that most of the world goes, that most self-help books go to, a lot of counseling and therapy techniques go to, is about not thinking about what's going on and distracting yourself, trying to elevate your mood, even get into the chemistry of if you do something positive, it elevates your serotonin and oxycontin and makes you feel happier, you can deal with things better. It's about avoiding and not thinking about the problem. But did you notice what Paul says is one of the first disciplines about how to attain peace? Go back to the text. Why am I in John? There we go. He says, verse 8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, he says, think about these things. You see, it's interesting, we'll go into this in just a minute, the very essence of Christian peace actually is about thinking about things where it seems like what many places the world goes is to not think about these, about what's going on. And it makes sense because what is... He, <laughs> well, let me just put all these up here. Discipline of having peace is to think, is to thank, and is to love. Verse 8, 6, and 8. Let's delve into the first one. Finally, verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, anything excellent and praiseworthy, think about such things. What is he talking about here when he's talking about whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure? Is he talking about a nice sunset? Might help, but Paul, based on his Old Testament background as a Pharisee and such, Paul is here is talking about doctrine. He's talking about that which reveals the very essence and nature of God. And he's saying, think about what those things teach you. Now, what are some of the things that those things teach you? It makes sense why the world doesn't go to thinking first, because what Paul says to think about is the very things that oftentimes give people not peace. Meaning, in this situation, what do I have that overcomes it? What is there that's more? How do I deal with this in life? What is, the, what is the meaning of life? How can I get through? Where am I going at the end of life? Those things are the very things that stress a lot of people out. But they're the very things that Christians ought to be thinking about. Paul says whatever is true, noble, right, pure, whatever is revealed about God, the very essence and nature of God, who God is, what God has done, he says think about these Things. One of the things that Paul seems to be saying is that for the Christian, if you are a Christian, you have the Bible, you believe in what God says, if you don't have peace, you are either not thinking about the right things or not thinking the right way. Kind of in your face, but that's what he says. It says, based on what we can know. And what do we know? Well, that God created this world, that God is an all-powerful God, that God is not a God of suffering, of sorrow, of, of pain, of agony, of angst, that he is a loving God, a just God, a pure God. Exodus 34 that we talked about last week, the fact that we know that that's God, that's who God is, and even more going into the New Testament that God has come in Christ Jesus to redeem and forgive, and through Christ God has overcome the world. He says, when you're not at peace, think about these things, and remember that in your life you have purpose, you have meaning, that you're suffering, and whatever you're going through, it's not for naught, that you will be redeemed one day. God, Paul says, Think about the big picture. Think about the very things that we as Christians have answers to that the world does not. 
and cannot. Just think. Based on what we know, based on what is true. Actually, the word for thinker is actually the base word for logic. <laughs> it doesn't just mean to, um, to have a passing thought. This word for think actually means to really, to really, really drill down on something, really, really put it in mind and reflect and really make it not just know it, but believe it. Make it something that you can meditate on day and night. Psalm 119 stuff. These things are the basis and beginning of peace. But he doesn't stop there. He says, think about these things, but also, he says what? Verse 6 and 7, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. One of the hardest things that I have incorporated into my prayer life, because I don't like it, is thanking God in the way that this verse says. What do I mean? Well, oftentimes when we ask for something for Christmas, right, we ask for it, we get the gift, and then we say thank you once we see what's happened, right? God says that's, or Paul says that's the wrong way. He says, do not be anxious, do not be torn to peace by anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, first, present your request to God. That means that you pray to God, you lay out what you need, you lay out your requests, and before anything happens, you say, God, thank you. Before you see any results, before your situation changes at all, you say, thank you. We can do this because if you were there on crucifixion day 2,000 years ago, if you were a disciple of Jesus and you saw your Messiah, if you saw your mentor, your friend up on the cross that day, you would have looked up and said, God, what are you doing? What good can come from this? What is this? This guy was doing so much good. He was, he was a savior of the world. He was a Messiah. He was, he was the prize. Why is he up on the cross? What we wouldn't have known is that by looking at the very thing we thought most horrible is that God was doing his most wonderful thing by putting his son on the cross. We wouldn't have even thought looking up at Jesus on the cross. We wouldn't have thought to say, wow, Jesus is up there. Oh, look, he died. Thank you, God, for this. Peter, someone would have smacked us on the head and went, stop that. When we pray to God, and God says he does hear, God answers our prayers in the way as someone who knows all things. He answers us in the way that we would ask if we knew everything that he knows. Which obviously, how much do you know when it comes to what you need and what we need? We can be thankful for how God answers before anything happens. And being thankful and being assured out of what we know that God hears and responds and will give us the best thing leads to peace. But finally, he says this in verse 8. 
Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, those are thinking things. Those are logical things. But then he shifts slightly. He says whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, whatever is excellent or praiseworthy, what he's thinking here is things of attraction. Not just things that are logically right, but he's saying here that you need to love Jesus. Jesus and Christ, God, you need to truly love. You need to find him attractive. You need to find the things which are attractive about them, the things that attract you, the things that are lovely. Now, for some people, this is a little bit awkward because we're fine with knowing about God. And we're fine even saying, yes, I love God, but are we really attracted to Jesus? Are we really attracted to God? Are we really attracted to Christ? And you are lovely. You are wonderful. You are excellent. You have that. I'm not saying that all of Christianity is emotional by any means. But nor is it all academic. The reason that this is important is because if you love anything more than God, you will never be at peace. Why? Because whatever that is will fail you. You will either never attain, or if you attain it, you will be empty. I don't know how many times people have relayed stories, professional football players, MLB players, they say, we won the Super Bowl, we won the World Series. There was nothing because it was an empty goal. What is it that you love? Do you love success? Do you love money? Either you will never attain it, or if you attain it, it will fail you. It will let you down. It will never fulfill you the way that anything else will. Do you love your spouse? Do you love your family? Even good things placed above the love of God, or you will lose your family one day. Or they will fail you. Or you will be so anxious about them that you will never do anything else about losing them. The love and attraction to God must come first in order to have peace. Anything else will wrap back around to this. Now, Augustine, 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 do we have any people who care about one way or another? I'm going to say Augustine. St. Augustine, early church father, writes about this. And he wrote in a time to where philosophers were debating this very thing, as a matter of fact, because people were aware, even thousands of years ago, the fact that peace doesn't come from loving things that go away. And so the philosophers came up with a solution. They said, only love that which you can control. You can't control your money. You can't control your family. You can't control your job. You can't control any of this. So only love what you can control, meaning your own virtue. Augustine actually wrote, challenging that, saying, you think that you are in control of your own virtue? Are you? Are you really in control of your actions, of who you are, of how you react to things, as well as you think you are? Augustine says, no, you're not. If you think that love is wrapped up in your virtue, either you will, you will never attain it, and when you violate, when you fail, you will lose everything. Augustine says that the only love that we can have is the love of the immutable, meaning that which can never go away, God. So here's the thing. Right now, right now, quick exercise. Everyone at home, do this with me, all right? Get ready. Right now, 
Try to love the immutable with everything you have. Go! Is it working? No matter, no matter how much you do it, it's abstract. It's kind of big. God, that's hard. And the objection is, well, I don't feel anything. Well, I don't know what that feels like. Well, Augustine actually has a response to that, which is right in line with the peace of God. Augustine says this, What do I love when I love my God? <clears throat> not the sweet melody of harmony and song, not the fragrance of flowers, perfumes, and spices, not manna or honey, not limbs such as the body delights to embrace. It is not these that I love when I love my God, and yet when I love him, it is true but I love a light of a certain kind, a voice, a perfume, of food, and embrace. But they are the kind that I love in my inner self, when my soul is bathed in light that is not bound by space, when it listens to sound that never dies away, when it breathes fragrance that is not borne away on the wind, when it tastes food that is never consumed by the eating, when it clings to an embrace from which is not severed by the fulfillment of desire. This is what I love when I love my God. What is Augustine saying? He's saying that, wow, loving such a big concept may not be the exact, like, oh. He's saying that by loving God, only can you truly love the things around you which you ought to love properly, in the right order, and fully. He actually called this reordering your loves. Read Augustine. He's good stuff. Only by loving God first and foremost, only on the altar of your heart, can you, one, ever have peace, but two, ever truly love anything else in such a way that is right, pure, true, noble, excellent, praiseworthy, that doesn't give you anxiety, but brings the peace of God. So those are the disciplines that attain peace Paul says, what is the secret of peace? And this word secret seems to be all mysterious and, you know, Gnostic. You know, I have the knowledge. Come to church if you want to know. And Paul says, no, it's not like that. Isaiah, way back in Isaiah 720s, 730s, 740s, writes this. He says, peace, peace to those far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, which cannot rest. The waves cast up mire and mud. There is no peace says my God, the wicked. So this is talking about, actually maybe think about whenever you were telling the story of Horatio Spafford. On the tossing sea, for those who do not know God, who reject God, for who do not believe that in what is right, pure, true, noble, the consequence of that is no peace. So no matter how much you can logicize into, well, things are just are, is how they are, that will never bring you peace. In fact, many people reasoning out the end game of if there is no God, that doesn't give peace because what is that? Everything's meaningless, everything's morbid, there's no point to anything. That's peaceful, isn't it? Many people don't want to go there, so they don't think about things because there's nothing to think about that's pure and excellent and true and praiseworthy. The consequence of that is no peace. And I'm not trying to sound condescending or judgmental. I think we know that's the truth. 
The secret of peace that Paul says. The secret of peace is that if only there was some way to deal with the consequence brought on mankind by rebelling and rejecting God. The secret of peace, Paul says, the peace of God is not a technique or a method or even just knowledge, but it's the fact of knowing and loving and thanking Lord, Messiah, Jesus for coming and atoning for the consequences of not only unbelief but atoning for the consequences of sin and rebellion clearing the way between us and God clearing any and every barrier between us and approaching God again so that we may indeed think on the right things love the right things be thankful for the right things in the right order and put only him who is immutable, only him worth having at the top of our hearts and from there attain peace. The secret of contentment, says Paul, is not anything that the world can offer, but only something which comes from that which has already overcome everything in the world. That's the knowledge, the love of Christ Jesus. Not just knowing about, but knowing. Not just thinking about, but really, really putting on the word, Jeremiah, putting on the words of your heart. Only the love of the immutable. There is a place for help. There is a place for professionals. There is a place. Not everything is a spiritual problem. But the biggest problem that nothing on earth can fix was dealt with on the cross 2,000 years ago. And with it, with Him, only can we find true peace. I ask you today, what do you think about? What and how do you love? And what do you seek when you need peace? There is a secret. Not really. Heavenly Father, so many people think this is so trite and so, well, Jesus came and did that. Help us to realize that it is so much more than that, that it is the way, the truth, the life of peace, the only way that we can attain anything close to being able to deal with the tribulation of this world. Thank you, God, for being so loving and merciful that you were willing to atone for the mistakes, atone, cover the consequences of all of mankind, that we may come to you and know peace and hope, and by that, know joy. May we show the world what it means to be able to answer and have the right thoughts about the meaning of things, about life. We don't know all the answers, but we know in whom is the right answer. May our loves be ordered in the right way. May we 
be able to be thankful in the ways that glorify you, that speak to our hearts and say, whatever my circumstances, whatever is going on, thank you, God, because there are things which I can't deal with, but you can. Help us to be like Paul. Help us to be like Jesus. Help us to be like you. Help us to show the world what that means. Transform us, God. Make us these people today. In your power, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.